Welcome to the Recovery Lab podcast. We are glad you are able to join us. Recovery Lab hopes to destigmatize addiction and normalize recovery. Our platform provides an avenue to share the many stories of those that have recovered from addiction, providing for the listener that most basic antidote to addiction. Hope. That sounded so good. All right, everybody, we're back. This is Recovery Lab. You just heard our new, newly recorded, awesome introduction. Yeah, there we go. I'm Drew Hassan. I'm Daniel Anderson. We are the Recovery Lab. We're joined today by Adam Clark. Clark. I wasn't going to say your last name, but you threw it out there. So I guess your face is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, the anonymity's already been broken. There we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. all good. All right, everybody, this is uh, episode number 37, but it's episode number one. From our new, that's new right. Space. That's right. Right. Shout out to uh, Drew for getting this this uh, allocated for us, and we're rocking and rolling with it. Uh, so things that are noteworthy in here: one is much more comfortable, more room. This painting behind Adam, I should give a shout out to my uncle Cleel, uncle Unc, if you're listening to it. Okay, I love you, and he gave that to me, and it is by one of his favorite artists. Uh, who has a strange last name. It's Mearsdorf. 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 And like he it. paints cool things, uh, uh, New Orleans jazz inspired. And uh, I love it. And I love it. Honestly, I don't know how anyone could I don't know how anybody not could like not like it. <laughs> Some people make you stick it in the closet. Yeah. <laughs> Who's Side <names>? eye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Cool. So. We want to. Uh, what do you want? Do you want to say any more announcements? So I did have this to offer yeah. twice this week. It really makes Recovery Lab meaningful on a lot of levels. So Tuesday, I got a text message from a guy. I'm not like super tight with him. He's a local fella in the NA community, and he was like, "Man, I just got turned on to Recovery Lab. Y'all are doing great work. Thank you for that. Do you ever have NA people on?" And then I felt a little bit convicted for not having NA people on, but we'll do better. We're not just that other 12-step. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We and pro- there's also, I mean, there's a million and one different paths to, to recovery. And yeah. We want to represent all of and those. And I, I told him that, and he offered up some people from his sponsorship tree that would cool. be good to be on the show. Uh, so that that really made me feel good. And he was like, thank you for your service. And I thought, thank you. Yeah, this, <laughs> thank you for what, saying that. That's what this is all about. And then last night, I had a lady that, I mean, we weren't tight friends when I, li- I lived in Hattiesburg for a little while mm-hmm. when I was first getting sober. And we, she and I were kind of in the same sphere. And she messaged me and she was like, look, I just saw, you know, the recovery lab thing. Hey, I need some help. I've got a good friend who, is, you know, she's off the, off, the, off the deep end doing crazy stuff. Uh, you know, her family's hurting. Do you have any suggestions? And I was able to, you know, text her a couple of people's contact cards that Johnny and Brad Garraway have mm-hmm. been on the podcast for, you know, and I thought, you know, what, a this is what it's all about. Trying to be yeah. a conduit, a place where people can go for resources and information and maybe the occasional very attractive hoodie or t-shirt. Yeah, absolutely. I have a little story to share myself this morning. I was getting meal prep, um, some meat at a uh, location that I will not name. Um, and, uh, the, the young lady there was like, Hey, I love your shirt. I'm going to hook you up and gave me like 
35 to $40 worth of free meat for meal prep. So, um, the uh, blessings, <laughs> blessings yeah, on so, blessings. Uh, That's the promises. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so thank you. That's what Bill W. had in mind. Yeah, yeah. You, you know who you are. Um, it was unnecessary, but uh, appreciated nonetheless. So talking about all these things, um, we also had a, a listener reach out this um, this week um, and sent us an email. And uh, I'll let you read the email, if you would, and then we'll talk about it. It starts off strong. I love your podcast. And have listened to every episode to date. I would love to hear more stories from the other side of addiction. The family picking up the pieces. I really enjoyed an early episode with Ginger Wartez and her husband. My family is in the worst of it right now. And I've been reading and listening to all I can for help with a close family member. Specifically, specifically, I'd love to hear advice on how to talk to small kids about their parents' addiction and how to handle parent visits. Our family member still sees me as the reason for all of this eight months after an involuntary commitment. How do you stay strong in your commitment to help without enabling behavior or continuing to be manipulated by addict behavior? Thanks for the work you do. It is very helpful. Fantastic. And thank you for that. So good. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, I, I, I'll, I'll just kick it off real quick. Um, you know, the, it is absolutely possible to uh, love the alcoholic to death. Absolutely. 100%. In eight months, um, my parents had me committed. Uh, and for the first two years of my first sobriety, I was a, a pissed off bumblebee and just hated, hated, hated everything, hated them. I hated, I was just a miserable person. Of course, I wasn't ready to get sober either, but what happened was a seed was planted and that seed continued to grow and grow and grow. And Adam and I were talking about this a little bit earlier. I presented this to him uh, earlier this week, and he said he has a little bit different perspective on it and uh, something that, that differs from my perspective and, and from yours, I believe. So, Adam, tell us a little bit about that. And also, thank you, Adam Clark, for joining us today. Absolutely. Um, we're going to We're going to dive deep into, into what you got, but I, I would love to hear your perspective on this. Certainly. Um, you know, a, a couple things come to mind just listening to that um, email, and I think about what you said about it's definitely possible to love an alcoholic to death. Um, and that was certainly the case for me um, until my parents put up some boundaries. And so looking back through, uh, you know, my addiction and alcoholism, I can see that them setting those boundaries in place really sped up my recovery. You know, if they had kept sliding me some money here and there, kept getting me out of this consequence or that right. consequence, it really just would have prolonged it because I wouldn't have felt the su- uh, sufficient amount of pain that I really needed to feel to do something different. Um, and then I've kind of got to experience the opposite side of that with my father, who's still in active addiction, one of us out there, um, and has been for basically my whole life and trying to figure out, you know, as a loving son, like, how do you love this person but not let them destroy your life? Because right. um, that's something that we as alcoholics and addicts are really good at. It's causing chaos in the uh, the lives of those that we love. Um, and for me, it took setting some really painful boundaries, um, you know, with my dad um, to the point now, like I, I don't have any contacts with him. Um, I really haven't for the past couple years. There's been a text here or there. But for my own mental health and my own recovery, um, you know, I had to get to the place where, again, I'd had enough pain. 
Right. Um, and I just wasn't willing to, uh, to let myself be run over anymore. And I think that's kind of similar to, uh, to the person who sent in the question, you know, you get to a point where you want to help this person, but I'm killing myself doing it. Right. And you, you got to find that balance of, I love them, but I, I can't sacrifice my own life. And my Detaching own with love. Uh-huh. For that other person. It's uh it's definitely a hard balance to find and something that I still struggle with. Yeah. And I would definitely recommend uh, to the, to the listener, if you have not uh, looked into Al-Anon, it is an incredible thing. And I also replied uh, with my mom's uh, cell phone number, who is in Al-Anon, has been in Al-Anon for over 20 years. And uh, I've spoke with her and she would be more than happy to talk with you. Uh, day or night, twenty four seven. So, Drew, what do you have to say about this? Well, quote. So, from in in response to specifically, I'd love to hear advice on how to talk to small kids about their parents' addiction. So, I had to speak to us. I don't know exactly how small you're talking about, but when I kind of came, when I moved back, you know, when I got sober and came back here and was. Then around my, at they would have been, I have three that are real close to get to, one of them is a set of twins. They're virtually the same age, you know, so it had been like eight and nine or seven and eight. And they had been told by my ex-wife that I took some medicine that I did not get from the doctor. And so uh, when I got here, they were a little bit older, you know, like maybe eight or nine, uh, seven or eight, somewhere around there. And so I, I was real honest with them about, uh, you know, daddy was sick. Daddy took some drugs. It was not good. Uh, you know, and you have to answer some uncomfortable questions like, where'd you get the drugs? And, you know, you come up with an age-appropriate answer for, you know, to describe a drug dealer, and then you – uh, answer follow-up questions well why did you go see that you know right you know well, anyway so uh, you know there there's lots of age appropriate ways to address that sticking with the they're sick is a that kind of covers you pretty good it's true and you know sick kind of takes of many different forms yeah. um yeah, I, I would say just try to get some support. Um, know that you are not alone. You are absolutely not alone. Um, there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people that have, have gone through. or There are, are going Facebook through. groups. Facebook groups, absolutely. Um, and then Al-Anon, man, I just, I, I, I can't, I can't speak highly enough of them uh, and what and, they do. And on the your loved one acting a fool and blaming you for the commitment, look, I can remember the last treatment center I was at screaming. I was stone cold sober, screaming at my parents, just letting them have it for all manner of evils that they were, you know, forcing into my life by not getting me out of this place by not helping me out by right. not by not by not it's all their fault all their fault all their fault and it's just part of the the process i mean i know that sounds awful but you really i mean of all the people whose opinions don't really matter in the world the newly sober person is crazy yeah i mean yeah. really and we were all there right. we were all there yeah, not, yeah. this is uh, it, 
I, I can be, I've been sober for almost six years and I can be crazy sometimes today. Yeah. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, but especially in early sobriety, I mean, your brain just is not functioning. You're an absolute mess. And it's the, just, it's just the where we're only at. difference between the newly sober person and the person in active addiction is the ability to pass a drug test and that their thinking is the same. Their thought processes are the same. There's absolutely no difference. They're just as crazy. They haven't learned how to function in reality. They haven't learned how to take uh, accountability or responsibility for their actions or to to even be kind. I mean, it's it's almost like pure selfishness. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's... That sums up addiction. That's it. You know, mm-hmm. that can only think, can only think about themselves. Yeah. And I think I will accurately attribute this quote to Brad Garraway, who said, if your loved one in active addiction is not mad at you, then you're probably enabling them. Right. And if they're mad at you, then you're probably doing something right. Right. Daniel's right. You can absolutely love someone to death. Yeah, just hang in there. Uh, you're not alone, um, and there's lots of there are lots of resources for you. So hang in there. I know that this is really hard for you and your family and everyone involved, but just know that we're here for you. There's lots of people out there for you, uh, there for you, uh, and you don't have to do this alone. Oh, I will say this. So I remember one time when I was in treatment, and it was when my kids were a little bit younger than a few. You know, when I referenced a few minutes ago, and I was talking to a therapist at Harbor House, and I was like, what am I going to tell my kids? And she said, look, you get each one of them individually, and you ask them how they feel about how you've been gone and this, that, or the other, and you just listen. And whenever they bring it up, whenever they want to talk about it, you owe them to talk about it. So that is the that was to address the relationship between the parent and the child when the parent is the one in active you know in recovery or addiction not necessarily talking to a small child about their parents addiction but i think the principles are applicable yeah absolutely absolutely well i hope that was helpful um and uh if you if anybody else you, have any you got anything else? you want to add no i think uh, i think we covered it pretty well all right cool um Anyone else, if you uh, you can reach us at recoverylabllc.com. Uh, you can get our email or uh, daniel at recoverylabllc.com uh, or drew at uh, recoverylabllc.com. You can reach out anytime, day or night, and uh, we're happy to hear uh, from you and uh, help in any way we can. All right, so without further ado, this gentleman here is taken out of his day to come and share with us, and we are incredibly grateful for you. Thank you. Um, Thank I God know I I have uh, been in uh, around you and seen you at work um, and with uh, with folks in recovery, and and I just have to say every time I've been blown away by how compassionate, how smart, how sharp you are, um, and and just charismatic with those. Uh, who are are on the the path to recovery, and I just I have a tremendous amount of respect for you. I'm so glad you're able to join us. Um, so let's take uh, 30, 45 minutes if you're if you're willing to talk about what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now, and and we'll jump into some questions. Yeah, it's at a little bit like a speaker meeting with questions. Yeah, yeah. If okay. you're if you're down with that, yeah, we'd, we'd love to to hear this. So without further ado, Adam Clark, ladies and gentlemen. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, thanks again for having me. Appreciate uh, all the kind words. It's definitely not me that uh, it's that person that you see. You know, it's a uh, it's a power greater than myself that's sure. uh, enabled me to be that way. Because 
as we're about to get into, that's certainly not what it was like for me before. Um, so, you know, I was telling Drew a minute ago before we started, I'm from Jackson, Tennessee. Uh, it's where all my family is, kind of born and raised there. Um, and childhood was like kind of normal for the first couple years. Uh, and then my father's alcoholism and addiction, you know, started uh, kind of causing that chaos that we're all a little too familiar with. Um, you know, it started with embezzlement from my mom's parents uh, to the tune of six figures going missing from their business. Um, and then that kind of like put a whole division between the family. So it was like, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you got like me, my mom, my brother, my dad, and then like the rest of the family. And they don't really mess with us and we don't mess with them. And, you know, my grandparents never pressed charges because they didn't want me and my little brother to grow up with a father in jail. Um, in hindsight, they probably should have. Uh, it would have would have saved a lot of time. But, um, you know, that's kind of how it, how it started at a young age. My parents split when I was seven. Um, and that was because my dad had knocked up his secretary after getting busted with prostitutes. Um, and then the secretary miscarried and he knocked her up again. And so they ended up getting married, uh, 31 days after my parents' divorce was finalized, which is the legal number of days you have to wait in the state of Tennessee. Makes sense. Uh, to get remarried. So that's kind of like from, from the jump, um, you know, it was chaotic. Um, and then my, my parents got divorced and my childhood. Did they have, do you have this, this half sibling? Did I do. Okay. Uh, yeah, I have a, a half sibling from my my dad's second marriage uh, to the secretary. Mm-hmm. Okay. Are you close with that individual or? Yeah. Not so so much? Um, my little sister Olivia, we're pretty close. It's uh, it was kind of different than a traditional brother sister relationship growing up. You know, with my dad being in active addiction and the secretary was as well. Now she's actually sober now and has about a year longer than I do, which is pretty cool. Sweet. So we've kind of gotten to, to reconnect and have some conversations about the chaos that we, uh, we were in together, you know, uh, during my childhood. Um, but yeah, me and my, how my sister, old were you when, um, when they split or yeah, I mean, all those things were kind of running together. So. Sure. So like I was, four when the embezzlement started and that came all out in the open so there was like two to three years of like inner family chaos before the divorce came when I was about seven um so my little sister like the divorce came there was the miscarriage and the timeline's kind of fuzzy because I was so you're about 10 years older than yeah I was nine when she was born Okay. okay I was about to about to turn 10 um and so I've got got her, and then I've got my younger brother, who's four years younger than me. Um, and then about this same time, a couple years after the divorce, my mom got remarried. Um, and so I've got a stepbrother who's 11 months younger than me, and then a stepsister who's a year and a half older than me. So there's five siblings in total um, split between the two households. Um, and so, you know, it kind of got normal for a while. When my mom remarried. Better? Hey, we got rid of the feedback. Now we're cooking, guys. So it kind of uh, it kind of got normal for a while. Like, my dad started working on the road, so he was traveling, and so his chaos was no longer front and center. Um, you know, the guy that my mom remarried, my stepdad, who is, uh, for all practical And it brought a lot of stability into my life. 
um, throughout that period. Um, you know, with dad being gone, like we were going to church every Sunday and Wednesday and I was in the youth group and I started playing in the band at school and, um, in talking to different therapists and stuff after getting sober, I realized that like at that time I started to have a lot of healthy outlets for the childhood trauma that I'd experienced. What were the, what were some of those outlets? Uh, so things like I was mentioned, you know, I was very active in the youth group at church um, I had a, a good friend group surrounding me. Um, I started playing in the band at school. What do you play? I played percussion. I did uh, drums uh, all the way through high school. Yeah. Don't really play that much anymore. Pick around on the guitar a little bit, but uh, the drums have kind of been collecting dust for a little while. Um, but, yeah, I kind of had those healthy outlets, and um, life got a little bit calm for a while. Um the whole time, I, I never felt like everybody else. Uh, I'm going to backtrack a little bit because I, I kind of skipped over something important that I want to touch back on. Um, but when I was like seven or eight at my dad's house, I was sexually abused by another kid about my age. Um, and so, How I, old were you? Seven or eight, somewhere okay. in there. Um, you know, it was one of those things that was really fuzzy for a long time. And, like, I really tried to drown out and drink and use out. Um, but I, I think that kind of started a lot of the trauma and then started, like, the hypersexualization that I had at a young age. Because, um, like, 7, 8, 9, 10, all the way through somewhere into my teenage years, um, like, had severe pornography addiction. Um, would consistently, um, you know, like, be getting caught looking at stuff on my phone and then my phone gets taken away and I figure out a way to get into my mom's computer. And um, and so I, I bring that up because, like, you know, it wasn't drugs and alcohol, but the addictive personality, man. It was right. it was on fire from a young age. Like, I found something that gave me that dopamine fix. Like, right. ooh, I want that, and I want more of that, and I want that all the time. <laughs> and I don't care about the consequences. Right. Like, that was never – up until I got sober, that was never really something that uh, – that stopped me from doing anything. You know, I'd, I'd get caught doing this or that, and I'd get consequences, or I'd get a whooping, and like, all right, we're past that, so how can I do it again? Right. You know? Uh, Just be smarter about it this time, you know? Uh -huh. not, get, not get caught. Yeah, how do I avoid, you know, what happened? Um, but, yeah, I wanted to, to touch back on that, but, you know, my... And let us let me just say this, and, and I'm, I'm sorry, but... Um, it takes a big man to, to be able to talk about that freely. So that's, to me, that's a tremendous indicator that um, you have done some serious work on this because that's a big thing. That's a big thing, and it's all too common with alcoholics and addicts. Um, and for I just want to commend you for being honest about that because your ability to, to get in touch with that, that, that individual that was hurt so, so tragically um, – it opens up so many doors for you to be able to help other people that struggle with the exact same thing and maybe, maybe incredibly ashamed about it or scared to talk about it. They don't want to, you know, so thank you from the bottom of my heart for talking about that because that's real, that's honest. And, um, I'm, I'm super grateful and I hope that someone hears something that they need to hear right now. Um, so thank you for that. I couldn't go on without saying that. So go on. Absolutely. You know, I, uh, I, I feel exactly what you said, um, and kind of the same with, with all of my, you know, past with addiction, and 
Um, I've heard you guys share similar sentiments on other episodes is that, man, if I'm not using it for some good out of it, then kind of what was the if point? If you can't make you something know? profitable out of it, yeah. then it ain't worth having. Absolutely. Um, so I guess back into uh, you know my, my teenage years there, there was kind of that in the background all along, you know. Um, but from the outside looking in, it looked pretty normal. I did well in school. Um, I started making a bunch of friends. I, I kind of had it, a rough go of it early on at school. Uh, I was an overweight kid. My grandparents were paying for me to go to a private school that my family couldn't afford to be at. And so I kind of felt out of place, but then... Like, I moved into a public high school, and I lost some weight. You know, puberty did me right, started making friends, and life kind of got normal for for most of high school. My dad was, like, traveling full-time, and his alcoholism was kind of toned down a little bit for a while. So Then he wasn't wasn't there. Yeah, he wasn't there, but then he also wasn't sowing all that other chaos that I could see. Um, And so, you know, it all kind of looked pretty good, and... Like, all right, I'm going to do the normal thing. All my friends are going to college. I'm going to go to college. Got into University of Tennessee, and I just wanted to go there because that's where the cool kids were going. Like, I, I didn't do any research. I didn't care about what kind of programs they had. Like, I wanted to go to the big school because I wanted to party. And I'd never partied in high school. Like, I had three Smirnoff green apples on prom night. There you go. And that was the extent of my drinking. That and boy. I thought we went hard that <laughs> night. Like, man, I thought how we old are you? really tied one off. Like, 17. No, how old are you right now? Oh, 29. Okay. 29. Yeah. I guess Zima was already gone. I yeah. got Zima. I, I got I Zima, I missed brother. Zima by a little bit. <laughs> um, but so, you know, I, I had basically a full ride to University of Tennessee. Killed the ACT, had to pay a little bit for room and board, but it was going to be taken care of as long as I did what I was supposed to do. Um, And so, you know, I get to college, and it's rush week, and the first night there I go out checking out the different fraternities, and I I get drunk. Um, And then the second night there I black out, smoke weed for the first time, and it was off to the races for me. Oh, it's dazed and confused for you. (laughs) Yeah, there was a – you know, it's wide open, jello shots, keg stands, the whole nine yards. All of it. Yeah. And, and that's the only thing that I wanted. You know, I had no like big overarching plan. Like, I'll party for a while. I'm going to be, I'm going to be together. a marine biologist. That's yeah. what I'm going to do. I'm yeah, going to yeah, yeah. go to engineering school. Like, yeah, none 100%. of that. I just wanted to party sure. and I wanted to talk to chicks. And yeah. that, that was the extent of it. And yeah. that's what I did. Um, and so I made it about halfway through that, that first semester of school before I realized like, I might need to, like, get my stuff together here. And I started looking and, like, pulling out the syllabus for my class and stuff. And I had already missed enough days that I'd automatically failed every one of my classes. And so that was my big Buckshot. Yeah. yeah. At that point, like, pff, there's right, no right, point right, in yeah. even trying, you know. Um, and, and so I, I just kept going harder. Um, and that pattern continued for, like, three whole years there. I went to University of Tennessee for a semester, 0.0 GPA. Moved back in with my parents, back in uh, with my mom and my stepdad. and Here comes the JUCO. Yep. Here we go, Jackson State Community College. Um, and I did the same thing, 0.0 GPA. But, you know, this time I couldn't. If you had gone to Jackson State dorm. University, you'd have had a whole different experience. You know, I went to the wrong Jackson Jack- State. Wrong Jackson the State. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Um, but I would, I would drive to campus and sit in my car in the parking lot and get high and then turn around and go back home so that my mom would think that I went to class. You can't, Yeah, this is a phenomenon. I did the same you're, thing. You're the second person 
who has said, you know, I mean, my mom could track me. This was not a thing yeah, when I, I was in college. But yeah. I did for the for the the continuity. I did that at church. That was my thing. Like yeah. I, I wanted my parents to think I was going to church, but I just sit outside the the youth group room and get high and take it on home. So I feel you on that, brother. I feel you yep. on that. Yeah, that's uh I feel like that really demonstrates the insanity of like, man, I could have just gotten out of the car and gone in there for forty five minutes. Like right. I'd already made all the effort. I'd told the lies, I'd gotten myself there, I'd even dressed myself for class because my mom saw me walking out the door. Right, you know? Exactly. Like there there's just one little piece and I just couldn't put that last piece of the puzzle together. Um but I, I did that for like two semesters at that community college. And then I started dating this girl, and I decided she was going back to University of Tennessee so that I was going to move back to Knoxville. And I did all the things that you do to go back to college. I filled out student loan paperwork. I got an apartment. I got roommates. Um, but I never registered for college. I skipped that part. <laughs> um, and so I got the loan package, and I'm basically just partying and living on loan money for, for, I don't know, like half the semester there and. My parents are like, yeah, send us some transcripts, send us your, your grades, da-da-da. And uh, eventually, at one point, my, my dad got on the phone with the, the community college that I told him I'd enrolled at. And uh, they confirmed that there was no one by the name of Adam Clark enrolled at that institution. The damn registrar telling the truth. I know. God, people being honest. Such <laughs> jerks. Um, and so, you know, there I was busted again. And this time, my, my mom and my stepdad were like, you're not moving back in with us. So I moved in with my dad um, and, like, just partied for a couple more months. Cause with him or? At that point, it was like I was slowly starting to party with him. Mm-hmm. Like, he knew that I smoked weed. I knew that he smoked weed. but We just didn't really talk about it. Sure. Um, he would let me have a beer and stuff with him every now and again. Uh, he had been in the same fraternity that I ended up joining. So, like, he came up on initiation night and we drank and all that and, and I thought it was the coolest thing in the world at the time. Like, I thought I had the coolest dad. Like, y'all's dads are over here doing engineering, and mine's doing keg stands. Like, right, right. Get out of here. Um, yeah, and so, I, you know, I moved in with him, and uh, he's like, well, why don't you try, like, do it right, enroll, and go back to University of Tennessee. He's like, you know, you only did one semester there, so you're still on probation, like, they'll accept you back without having to do new transcripts. Like, you just can't screw it up this semester. I'm like, okay, I get it together. This is your dad saying this. Uh-huh. So he wasn't a terrible person. I mean, he yeah. had – he had. He, he definitely not. You know, he, he he's one of us. Yeah. He's he's sick and suffering. Um, and that, that's been something that's been, you know, hard for me to grasp, and especially dealing with my other siblings who aren't addicts or alcoholics and aren't in recovery – you know, I've got a different level of sympathy there because, like, I know the chaos that right. I cause in people's life. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, there was lots of times, and really I think the whole time, you know, deep down he wanted what was best for me. He, he loved me, wanted me to succeed and excel. Um, but just like we were doing when we were out there, you know, we were working, uh, doing the best that we could with what we had at the time. Um but, you know, he, he encouraged me to uh, enroll back in UT, and I did. And then I did the same thing for the fifth semester in a row. I didn't go to class. I had a 0.0 GPA. Um, and at that point, that's when I was like, I, I don't think this is for me. I don't think I'm, I'm going to do college. Um, you know, I'm, I moved back from Knoxville, back in with that again. 
And where was he? Where was he living? Jackson, Tennessee. Okay. So it was back and forth from Jackson, Tennessee to Knoxville, Tennessee, there for a couple years. Um, and he's still traveling for work. So when he's working, I'm got the house to yourself. Twenty at this point with the house to myself, and he's holding it together. His business is doing well, so he's got like a a blacked out Mercedes, uh, big sedan that he doesn't take on the road with him. So I'm 20 years old. I'm driving this blacked out S class Mercedes. I got the house to myself. I'm throwing parties. I mean, I think I am king of the absolute yeah. world. Um, until I'm not, you know, one, one night he comes home, uh, from work and like, I don't even remember what the house looked like, but destroyed would be an understatement. Um, he said they counted 250 cigarette butts that they picked up out of the front yard. I don't know if he was exaggerating or not. He's one of us. He might have been. But, um, you know, I got kicked out of that place. So now I'm kicked out of my mom's and my stepdad's. I'm kicked out of my dad's house. I'm 20, no college degree, no sort of work experience other than, like, washing dishes, working, you know, retail. Um, and I move in with my grandparents. And at this point, I start working in the in the restaurant serving and bartending which is really like where my alcoholism and addiction got 10x to the next level. Um, I think there's a, a, a lot of us, you know, in the rooms sober who uh, had that experience with the restaurant and the bar scene. Yeah. Um, but when you get off work at 11 o'clock and you're hungry, the only place that's open is the bar. Everybody goes to the bar. You go get some food. You go, uh, go start having a couple drinks. And then that was just slowly became my lifestyle. It was like, you know, I was the party drinker in school. Not every night. I smoked weed every day, but now I was drinking every night, Um, which meant I was coming to work hungover every day. And I I did this for the longest, and, you know, the the timeline kind of gets fuzzy through this part of my story, Um, but this is where we start to introduce other substances. Um, You know, at some point at one of these bars, I tried cocaine for the first time, um, and it was just like my experience with alcohol and weed. I was off to the races. Yeah, it felt um, good. Yeah. You know, any time that I found something that changed the way I felt, I just wanted more. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, there's, like, two years there where I'm just doing blow. Um, and, you know, when I when I start to, uh, to do a substance, I start to pick up other activities that go with it. Sure. Because uh, very rapidly, I cannot afford to uh, – intake the amount that I need to feel the way that I want to feel, um, which means I got to figure out a way to get some more money. And we just went over the fact that I have no degree, no experience, no job. So um, I'm either going to start stealing from you or I'm going to start trying to sell drugs. And I tried multiple times with multiple different substances. Y'all, I'm just not made to be a drug dealer. <laughs> like I'm just not cut <laughs> out for either, it. Uh, I cannot get past that. Don't get high on your own supply. That. They say it's the number one rule, and it just it gets me every time. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes a certain amount of discipline that I don't have. Yeah, I don't have it either. I, I couldn't even. I was too terrified of getting getting arrested. I mean, I yeah. I did some time in jail for stupid stuff as a kid, and I realized that was not something that I was keen on on repeating. So, yeah, probably yeah. for the best. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. And yeah. it's a good thing that that God kind of. You know, made healthy that, fear. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's you know, it worked out beautifully because you're not in jail now as a result of selling. And you know what they say is, you know, I mean, let's be honest, the money that you can make from selling drugs is pretty incredible. So, if you were you know addicted to the substances, just imagine what copious amounts of 
of money would do, you know, it's just, Oh yeah. It's toxic. Just toxic. Yeah. I definitely looking back, I see that as God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. Exactly. Cause I, I, I would have killed myself mm-hmm. cause I almost did. And I was barely scraping by. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, there's, there's no telling <laughs> how dark it would have gotten if I could have afforded more than what I could have afforded. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's see, where was I at there? Yeah, sorry about that. You were uh, working at the restaurants um, and going out to eat or going to drink every night uh, and just started to blow. Okay. Um, Yeah, so, you know, and like I said, I started and I started trying to sell it and, um, you know, I pick up a little bit here and I I never really was able to to quite do enough to make any money. I could could string enough money together to go back and get the next bag so that I, I wouldn't run out. Um, and, you know, through this process, like working at the restaurant and starting trying to like sell or middleman, um, Coke, like I'm introduced in other people, these substances who haven't previously tried them. Um, and now, you know, I, I can't take any responsibility for what somebody does with the substance down the line. Um, but I feel like it's an important thing to point out. Like, you know, I, I caused harm there and brought substances into other people's life that may not have ever been introduced to them otherwise. Um, and in some point along the way with, with doing the blow, I got introduced to opiates. Um, and that kind of, it took over for me. You know, I wasn't able to just quit Coke. I was never able to quit a substance, but I, I could always manage the substitution. Sure. Um, and, you know, so, and that's really where, like, my story take takes all the way off to the, the rock bottom is, uh, I come in for a, a Saturday morning double shift at the restaurant, about to work 12 hours, and um, just like the worst hungover. We've all been there. you got the spins, you're puking, you can't hardly see straight. And uh, one of the other servers walks up with a little yellow pill and is like, hey, man, I got something that will make you feel like Superman. Just give me 10 bucks." Okay. I didn't even ask what it was. 10, pop it. Um, and he gave me, I don't remember the exact pill, but it was some opiate, a hydrocodone something. Uh, and it cured my hangover. I didn't have the spins anymore. Uh, not only did I not feel shitty anymore, I felt great. Like I was ready to go. I was excited to go talk to my tables. I was chatty. Um, and I'm like, dude, this is perfect. This is the the hangover cure. Like, right. How does everybody not know about this? Um, and so that's kind of how it started. Like I'm still boozing every night, but then when I come over a little hungover, like, I know I can go holler at Chris. He's got what I need. Right. Chris uh, has always got it. Doesn't he? It's always a guy named Chris, you know. <laughs> um, sorry to all the Chris's out there. Yes, sir. But it, it kind of slowly ramped up. You know, the, the pills was one where I didn't go all in at first. Um, but, like, I was hung over a lot. So there was a lot of mornings that I was hung over and needed that fix. And then it was like, well, I'm going to work. I'm not really hung over, but I might as well take one anyways. And then it was like, well, I need one to wake up. And then I need one for work. So I need two a day. And then it was two for breakfast, two for lunch, two for dinner. <laughs> Um, and, and it just progressed very, very rapidly. And that's all I did for like the next two to three years was go to work, get enough money to go see the pill man, get some pills, go black out into oblivion, wake up, hope I had enough to get well before I got to work. It's like groundhog day. Yeah. yeah. Just it, over and over. Just over and over and over again. Um, and you know, at, at that point, like, you know, I'd already done all the, the typical, like, attic things that we do, you know, working at a restaurant. Like, you get a cash table, you throw an extra coupon on there, make yourself a little bit of extra money. 
Uh, and I'd been doing that kind of shady, stealing criminal behavior for a while, but I hadn't started reaching into people's wallets yet. Um, and, <coughs> you know, it got to the point where I'm spending 100 plus bucks a day uh, on some form of painkillers, whatever I can get my hand on, and I'm not making 100 plus bucks a day. Um, but my poor, sweet, widowed grandmother has a great pension, heck of a retirement account. Um, and she's recently widowed, needs somebody to help her with simple things, getting groceries. And so on the outside, I'm portraying this image that I'm going over there grandson. to help, help. We called her Bobby, uh, to help Bobby. And, you know, I'm going to get her groceries and I would, I'd take her card and I go to Kroger and I get a hundred dollars worth of groceries and then $300 cash back and take her card right back to the house and then go get what I needed to get. Um, and had zero shame about it, like zero, uh, zero remorse. I didn't feel bad. Um, and, you know, it, to me, it illustrates just how twisted of a mental state we get into. Um, I felt entitled to that money that I, I didn't put in any work for that money. You know, I didn't teach in the public school system for 50 years to earn a pension. Um, but I, I felt like that was owed to me. And that she wasn't using it, and she wasn't going to miss it, and it didn't matter. Um, and so that that continued, like I said, for you know another year or so there, um, until one day the pills dried up. Like you know, at, at this point, I've been doing painkillers for two or three years. Like I got a guy on this side of town, one on this side of town. I got a guy whose cousin knows somebody. Um, three different guys in the restaurant, yada yada, and nobody has anything. Um, and it goes like eight, ten hours. And um, for those of y'all familiar with opiate withdrawals, heroin withdrawals, when you're taking that quantity, six to eight, ten hours, you're feeling bad already. Um, and then it went another ten or twelve hours. And so now we're at like twenty-four hours, and I'm sick. Um, you know, I'm getting hot, cold, shaky. I got the stomach stuff going on. Uh, and then it goes like another ten or twelve hours. And then it's been like two days. And this is the longest I've gone without opiates. Like since I started taking them daily. Um, and I, I'm basically just like confined to the bathroom floor. And one of my guys uh, hits me back and he's like, hey, I didn't get any pills, but I got some of that boy. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't even know the slang at the time. I don't, I'm um, not familiar with his boy. Heroin. Uh. Um, and so like here I am like asking him like, what's that boy? Like that dog it, food. Yeah. And that's what's happening. He's sending me other slang mm. that I also don't recognize. And I'm like, bro, you know, that happy clapper. Yeah. yeah. Can we use English here? Yeah. Like I'm trying to feel better. I am dying right yeah, now. Right. Um, and you know, I was scared of it. Like, um, and, uh, you know, he told me what I needed to hear. He's like, it's not what you want, but it's going to make you feel better. And that was all I needed to know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, I go to see my guy. And like I said, I'm spending 100-ish bucks a day on paint. Do you even know how to shoot point. up? No. So, I, actually, I didn't shoot up. I snorted it. Okay. Um, I, I Thankfully, I hit my rock bottom and got to treatment before I ever graduated to the needle. Yeah, you don't need it. Yeah. Um, but even without the needle, you know, that the $20 worth that I got from dude lasted me for three days. Yeah. And I remember thinking, like, this is the Why solution. have I been wasting my money right, on right. pills? Like, that sounds so absurd sitting here sober saying it, but, like, trying heroin and being, like, figured out the answer to all my problems. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, but that's how I felt. Like, dude, I'm going to save so much money, which means I'm going to be able to uh, get on my feet financially, which I'll be able to get out of this apartment. And like, I'm, I'm going to buy a house. Yeah. I'm going to buy a house. I'm one just going to do a little bit of heroin before I go to the, the closing, but I'm going to get that house. Look, one of my early guests, a therapist named Keenan Wald, and he said, you know, most Keenan's awesome. And he said, most people start off, you know, most addiction starts as pleasure seeking, but it ends with pain avoidance. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens when we're all, you know, you know, we've been on, this, that, or the other uh, pain pill, and then, you know, it's like water seeks its lowest level, you're going to end up on heroin because it's yeah. cheaper. Right. Yeah, it gets, uh, it gets you every time. Every time. And it's easier, too. I mean, it's, I, I never did heroin. I think I may have done it once, like, in this, like, weird transaction. Um, and But I was also doing meth at the same time, and I, I don't really recall much. But was it it's, – it's pretty easy to get. Like once, if you're connected into the the dark side of the community, it's pretty easy to get. Sometimes, often more more so than pills, right? Yeah, the the heroin and, and part of that's because it's. I mean, it's all getting cut now. You know, that's a whole other conversation. But all the fentanyl and stuff in it, but right. like, um, it, it never ran dry. You know, it was I was always hitting up somebody looking for pills and like, nah, man, I got a script coming tomorrow. Well, as, or, as the as the restrictions on prescription abuse you know as they increase the availability of those legitimately obtained pharmaceuticals decreases and what are you left with a whole bunch of desire there's a whole lot of demand and no supply so i mean people are going to do heroin more times than they go you know maybe i just need to get sober yeah yeah exactly well and you know, I, I learned this in uh, in treatment from one of my my therapists or counselors um, in there, and I didn't didn't realize this at the time, but it makes perfect sense. Is you know the way opiates and all other substances work is you know when you take that substance, there's a, a huge dopamine spike in your brain, um, much bigger than anything else that we do naturally. Like you know, having sex is like a two fifty, or doing heroin's like a three thousand right. right scale, and um, so eventually your body gets so used to these big dopamine spikes, the the same part of your brain that regulates your breathing and tells you when to pee and that right. uh, I need to eat some food and drink some water, like your substance makes it into that same list in your subconscious. And, you know, it, it's hard to explain like when you're an alcoholic and active addiction that like, I don't know why I went and got high. Well, because my brain's telling me I need to get high like I need to take my next breath. Right. You know, there's no there's no second thought to it. <clears throat> I thought, thought you were about yeah, to say something. Yeah, I did something. too. I did too. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, sorry. Um, yeah, but so that's, you know, I, I started taking heroin. Um, and, you know, like I said, thankfully I didn't didn't graduate to the needle. I stayed snorting it. Um, that's bad enough. Yeah. yeah it's nasty yeah, I mean, it, it took me to my knees in like six, seven months. You know, I, I maintained on the opiates for years. Um, and then within seven months of starting heroin, I was in treatment. Um because that $20 that lasted me three days the first time, within like a month, was $200 a day. Right. So now I'm double dipping in grandma's wallet twice as much. You know, I'm embezzling more money from work, coupon and discounting, doing this, that, and the other. I'm stealing booze from work, and I'm drinking on the clock now because I can't always get enough to, to not be sick. And so, like, now I'm just like a dumpster of throw whatever substance in me you want. Like, um, I would take it, you know. 
whether it was um, more opiates or if I couldn't find the opiates, if you had an upper, a downer, some booze, some, I, I just didn't care. I just did not want to feel how I felt. Poly substance in my body. abuse. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said earlier, like it was just more. Um, whatever you could give me to not make me feel like me. Um, and so, you know, the, the way that I ended up in treatment, uh, it's kind of funny because my, my dad, um, you know, who we talked about some, ended up catching on to the fact that I was taking money from my grandmother. And so I got busted. And uh, I was dating this girl at the time, and, man, I put together this sob story. Her parents were doctors, and they had money, and, yeah, I was stealing from her, but I was just trying to impress her and, you know, just skirting around the fact that there's any sort of substance problem here. Um, and I don't know that he bought it, but he let me get away with it uh, for, like, another month until he caught me again. Um, and, you know, this time I, uh, like, my parents just show up at my house. My mom and my, my stepdad, I'm living with this girl, and they're like, hey, uh, you need to give us your grandma's debit card right now I'm like oh shit like I, i'm caught to get real i'm busted yeah and so i give it to them and i'm like getting ready to go to work um and you know i tell them like they're wanting to talk to me and stuff I'm, it's the last thing i want to do so this was the this the taking money from your grandma that was a that wasn't just like something that you could sometimes rely on that was that was the source of income for your for your drugs right yeah so I without mean, that like things start to fall apart right rapidly yeah um yeah i mean it, it was at the point where like if not every day like every other day right. but it was consistent you knew that you could count on that basically i knew that if everything else fell through like i could find a way to get to her house and get get what i needed to get um and so that was dried up um and like i go to work and I, i'm supposed to you know go talk to my parents after work and i blow that off and i get high one more day um and I, I I was just done. Like, I was so tired of running. I was tired of all of it, the hiding, the lies, that I, I finally was just like, all right, I'll come talk to you guys. Um, and so, you know, I went and sat down with my parents, and they started asking me what's going on. And anytime like, I'd gotten any sort of consequences, it was like lie, evade, skirt around this. Um, and for the first time, I was just honest with them. Like, I, I don't know. I need help. I'm doing heroin. Something like that came out of my mouth real quick, and you know, everybody can imagine my mother's face like shocked right. Pikachu. Um, and I got help, you know, it, it turns out that, uh, like for the last three years that I was using, um, my older sister was the director of Jackson, Tennessee's anti drug coalition. Your Which, sister, wow. yeah, I didn't even, I didn't even know what she did for a living. Wow. You're fixing to find out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I'm, when I tell you, God showed up and He showed up quick. How, is she how much older than you? Is she a year and a half? Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, so it tur turns out like she's super plugged up with the recovery community and has somebody that works for her who's a what do they call it like a lifeline peer counselor or something like that. Basically, they work as an advocate to help peer people get support into recovery. Person, yeah. Uh huh. And, uh, so like this lady showed up at, at our house the next day. Like I, I ended up staying with my parents that night. And so I'm starting detox like at my parents' house. Um, and I, I'll spare you all the, the gory details, but like my mom's guest bedroom will never be the same. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
But the the next day, this lady Diane shows up uh, at the house, and I don't know Diane from anybody else. But you know, she sits down and starts talking to me, and uh, you know, she tells me she's in recovery. She's got twenty something years or close to it at that time, and you know, then she pulls out a picture of her last mugshot, shows me, and I'm like back and forth, like it doesn't look like the same person. Right. Um, but it's just like we talk about in you know the twelve step rooms. Is it like you can gain the confidence of somebody else so rapidly when you've had that same experience. And that's what she was able to do. Like, you know, I heard my parents saying like, oh, you shouldn't be doing this. This is why. But like, they never did drugs. So I didn't really put much account into what they said. Like, "Mm, that sounds great. They don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. The church says that and all that's fine. But like, you haven't tried it. So get out of here. Um, But like, I related to her instantly. Um, She was able to make that connection and I trusted her. Like, okay, like, I can see this picture and see you now, and I want that because I feel like I look like that picture right mm-hmm. now. Um, and so, you know, I, I agreed to go to treatment, um, and she started getting on the phone, and like like I said, God started showing up because, like, we were trying to get me somewhere local, and they couldn't get me in for, like, a day and a half, and she got a hold of this place out in Scurry, Texas, uh, which is outside of Dallas. It, Actually, some other treatment center bought them out now, but it was called the Tree House. Um, and they're like, you know, we got a bed for him, send over his insurance, and then they run my insurance. None of it's covered. It was going to be like 50 grand. Um, and then she like gets back on the phone and she's like, hold on, you know, they're calling me back. They call her back. All right, we scholarshiped everything for Adam. Um, how can you get him here? I'm like, all right, let's figure that out. So we start trying to figure out a, a plane ticket. Um, and then, you know, my parents helped me out and got me a plane ticket. Um, and so like, it's like midnight and I tell my parents, like, I'm doing heroin, I need help. And then like 6 PM the next day, I'm checking in to the, uh, the tree house in Scurry, Texas, like going through my, my intake rehab. Um, like it was just instantaneous when I, I reached out and asked for help. Um, it showed up big. And oh. isn't that a good, I mean, that's a beautiful, you know, depiction of what happens when you give up and ask for help, you know, asking for help is not easy. Now, when we're in that frame of mind, when everything else in our life is going to absolute crap, you know, asking for help is a lot easier. But I, I, I want to encourage people that if you are struggling with this kind of thing, you know, throwing up your hands and, and asking someone for help is not a bad thing it's a wonderful thing so continue on I just had to say that go on yeah absolutely um yeah so you know I I went to the treehouse and did 28 days of uh of inpatient rehab and then I did uh, another like six or eight weeks of intensive outpatient after that at a place back in Tennessee um you know, I, I got to, I feel like, the the root causes and conditions of a, a lot of why I drink and use. Um, you know, like we mentioned earlier, the, the sexual uh, abuse that I had at a young age, like, that's something that I had never spoken to anybody about until I got sober. And so, like, that's just always back there. And, like, the verbal abuse from my dad and the uh, second wife, like, all these different things that I'd experienced that I just, like, got this little black box down in here and I just like to stuff feelings and anything that feels gross or icky down in there and you know lock it and throw that key away and so finally 
um, started to process and deal with some of those things that, um, you know, had, had really, I don't want to say caused my drinking and using, but fueled, uh, a lot of my drinking and using for many years. And then I started working the 12 steps. Um, you know, I, I was encouraged to hit a meeting when I got out of treatment and to find 90 of them in 90 days. And, you know, I, I'd had enough period of time without the drugs and alcohol in my system at that point, and I felt enough relief, like I'd got just a taste of like maybe how good this could get, right. that I was willing to do anything. Sure. You know? Um, and so that's what I did. Um, and my life's just gotten progressively better since then. Um, so you never relapsed. Once you got it, you got it. Yeah. One now, and done. That's so awesome. There. How long ago was that? So it'll be five years in July. Hell yeah. Here, here. That's there was awesome. definitely some attempts at sobriety before going to treatment, but I, I don't really count that as a relapse because I never really got sober right, along the right, way. Right. You know, I don't want to say that like, oh, I just tried to get sober and the first time it was just like magic because I, I definitely beat my head against the wall. Like uh, I've shared before, like getting bad into the opiate addiction and like, literally just Googling, like, how to get through opiate withdrawals. Like, okay, I can take these 37 supplements, and if I do this and I exercise. Imodium AD. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, take the whole pack of them. Right, and right. Then, but, like, none of it. I just, yeah. I could never get it. I, I had to be physically separated. And, you know, I had to go through medical detox and, um, and get myself clear-headed enough, uh, get the substance out of my body long enough to be able to, to start to do some of the work that – you know, accompanied that. That's awesome, man. So what's it like today? What do you, what are you, what are things like today? Uh, man, today life is cooler than I pretty much ever thought it could be. Um, you know, I, I, like I said, I got sober, started working, working the steps, started carrying other guys through, um, which nowadays to me like that, that brings me more meaning than really anything else that I can do, you know, carrying the message to somebody who's still struggling with, with this disease that we've all dealt with. Um, but like, you know, I, I, I'm a homeowner today. Uh, when I was getting sober, uh, I'd been kicked out of my mom's, my dad's, my grandparents, two different girls, a friend's house. My car was getting repoed. Uh, I was getting let go from my job, like just absolute chaos. I couldn't, couldn't hold down anything, no sense of stability. And like, I own a home today and I have a job that I've had for, four years now and in that time they've promoted me and given me more responsibility and now like I have people who work underneath me which is just it's still mind-boggling to me um that like looking back and seeing the Adam of days past that anybody would trust that guy right with any sort of responsibility um I mean you, you run it you run the store don't you yeah I mean for a heroin guy to now be running a, a store like for a national corporation. Right, you know? right, right, right. Like yeah. that's insane. And it happens all the time with people in recovery. Like not all the time, but like what no, you does, have though. is, is pretty incredible. But the, the point is like you, just because you are in a awful, awful situation right now, don't ever lose hope because there can good things, wonderful things, amazing things can and will happen. You just have to make that decision to do one thing different, just one thing different. And, and, you know, things have a tendency to start to, to happen. And, and it sounds like there were incredible people that God put in your life 
to to help you with that process and to take you by the hand and show you how to do it and and to help you through that and now like i mean look at you bro like look at you man like it's incredible like sobriety is absolutely freaking incredible. it is the gospel like, truth the good things happen to drug addicts yeah like it's the promises it's like and, and i don't want to you know i, I don't want to harp too much on on god for me god is an incredibly important thing in my life but you know, you also don't have to know God in order to come into into recovery. Like, you don't have to believe anything. Like we, you know, there are a million different paths to to recovery and sobriety, um, and and none of those are right. You know, mm-hmm. so no matter where you are in life, no matter wh- how you feel about higher powers or God or anything, you know, if that turns you off, fine. It doesn't matter. Just come in here, make the decision to do one thing different. Just just put it down and try one thing different. And I think that you'll be amazed as to what can happen. And this is proof positive right here of what happens when you make that decision to do something different. And it sounds like, you know, something bigger than us took you by the hand and said, all right, I see some willingness. Let's, let's make some things happen. And, and you kind of just walk through the door. You did the work obviously, and you continue to, to, to do the work on a daily basis and, you know, to help other people and take them through the you know, to take them through, you know, recovery and things like that. And, um, you know, you're, you're doing the deal and it's absolutely incredible. I mean, uh, it's just, I'm, I'm just, I'm getting kind of goosebumps right now by, you know, and I, I also, I was just a, a just a piece of crap, just a piece of crap. Mm-hmm. Just meth just brought me to my knees, you know, uh, it didn't, it didn't have that impact on me. <laughs> <laughs> I know for a fact it most certainly did. Um, so what else you got going on today? Like what what else is is going on in your life? I think we got um, both here. of y'all's watches are telling you it's time to stand up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're God. we're at an hour. All right, so we're doing good. Um, what is there anything else that you want to talk about? Um, I know that you've got um, what's the whiskey and milk. Yeah. So, Tell us uh, a little bit about that. Wearing uh, one of our shirts here, our, our whiskey and milk shirt. I love it. And so uh, you know, after being in recovery for a couple of years. I kind of realized that, like, man, I got a lot of shirts from different young people's conferences, AA-related stuff that I couldn't always wear in public without fear of breaking my anonymity. Uh, now, for me, I, I'm, I'm out there, you know, I no longer have anonymity, but I still felt like that was a really cool concept. So, like, this is our whiskey and milk design. You know, it comes from the story in the big book right. of mixing whiskey with the milk. Um, but all of our designs are set up so that, you know, if you're somebody familiar with 12 Steps in the recovery, knows the big book, you're probably going to recognize it pretty instantly. It's kind of a, if you know, you know. Right. Um, but you can check out all the designs. Nod, nod, that, wink, wink. Yeah, right, exactly. absolutely. Um, how do that, we, how that, can we find something like that? Uh, you can find me on whiskeymilk.com. You can, Is it just whiskey and milk or whiskey milk? You can actually com. do either. And okay. It'll bring you. Um, but okay. whis- whiskey milk, whiskey and milk, uh, either one.com will bring you there. Uh, you can find me on Instagram, whiskey and milk LLC. Same thing on TikTok. And also, ten percent of all sales go to what? How, how does that? Yeah, so ten percent of all all sales are going to nonprofit treatment centers. Yeah. Um, I've got one that I'm set up with back home um, that I'm got that set up where I can do, you know do steady donations with them. Um, but would like to get plugged up with more treatment centers and more resources. So if there's anybody out there, um, Harbor House, holler at your boy, now, yeah, <laughs> Region Eight, yeah, coming I'm at here. you. That's awesome, man. Do you have anything else that you wanted to ask? No, I think you're spectacular, man. Thank yeah, you for appreciate coming. It. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, man. Thank you so much. Like, just your honesty is just incredible, dude. I, I can't thank you enough. And 
Um, you're welcome back anytime, and and um, thank you so much for for coming and giving of your time. And we can have a whiskey milk recovery lab joint venture. Of some hey, kind. we really should. We really should. Is that yeah. T-shirt's on point, man? Yeah, Who did the pretty, artwork for you? Uh, I got a designer that's uh, doing all the artwork. Sweet, sweet. All right, so whiskey and milk or whiskeymilk.com. Um, also, um, what else? What else? Oh, how can how, if somebody wants to get in touch with you? Uh, what's the, uh, is there a phone number for the whiskey milk or email address? You already said it, but say that one more time. Yep. So you got a uh, whiskey and milk LLC at Gmail. Welcome to the fourth dimension. Which, yep. That's it, buddy. Yeah. You can, uh, you can find the contact info on the, uh, on the website or feel free to slide into the DMS on Instagram or TikTok as well. Awesome, man, bro. Thank you so much. Thank you. You Appreciate rocked it. You guys. All right. Um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. And uh, we will see, well, Drew will see you next week. I'll be out of town, but Drew will be here holding down the fort. So hopefully. Thanks so much, everyone. We're out. I need a fourth dimension hoodie. <laughs>